God, as we approach your word here in this moment, Lord, we are needy people. God, we are in need of your spirit to take the words of Christ and to impress them upon our hearts. God, I pray that you would use your word here this morning to bring hope to the hopeless. God, to bring conviction to the complacent. And Lord, I pray that you would inflame our hearts with a desire for Jesus. So God, help us to see him clearly in this passage, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, one of the shows, TV shows, that Lindsay and I have been watching a lot of this summer uh, is on HGTV called House Hunters. And uh, now, men, before you uh, start judging me here, we all know that there is nothing going on related to sports in the month of July. There's like, you know, the 200th baseball game on TV. That doesn't really matter. So I don't tell Lindsay this, even though she's in the room, but I'm strictly just putting in my time for HGTV so that I can later watch sports here in the fall and the winter. That's kind of how our marriage works there. Um, but if you're unfamiliar with, uh, with the show House Hunters, um, House Hunters is a TV show where they have a prospective uh, home buyer. It's usually a couple. And they basically uh, allow this couple to tour uh, three uh, potential houses for them to select the one that they want to buy. And towards the end of the episode, uh, it shows them selecting which house they purchase and has them kind of moved in and all settled, living happily uh, ever after. But my favorite part in the show, and this happens on almost every one of, of, these, uh, of, of these TV shows for house hunters, is when the husband and the wife have completely opposite reactions to the same house. Like it happens in every TV show, like, and it's so predictable. Like usually it's like this house that's dark and industrial with a man cave. And of course, like the husband's going to love it and the wife is not going to like it. And so they, you know, like, I didn't really like it. No, wow, how could you not like it? It's an awesome house. Let's buy it. And you have kind of this conflict here because they've got two different responses to the same, uh, to the same house. And my question, whenever I'm watching the show, is like, how does that happen? Like, how can you have the same event or the same experience and yet different reactions, different responses to the very same thing? Well, that question is the question that I want to wrestle with in our passage here uh, together in Luke chapter 23. Because one of the observations you should have made as you heard the Word of God preached, or not preached, but, um, but shared, Katie didn't preach there, she just read the Word of God, is that there are different reactions to the same event that's taking place here. You've got different responses to the death of Christ. And I just want to look at this and ask why. Like, how does this happen? What, what are the responses? And how, how can you have a different reaction to the death of Jesus? And so as we move through this passage, I want to highlight three different responses that I see to the death of Christ. The first one is the response of ridicule. The second response is a response of rejection. And the third response is the response of repentance. So three responses to the cross of redemption. Let's first look at what Jesus is doing here on the cross in verses 32 through 34. Now starting in verse 32, it reads, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, referring to Jesus. I just want to stop there for a moment, and we, we read this verse really without the benefit of walking through uh, Luke's narrative of Jesus. But if we had been walking through Luke's narrative, one of the questions that we immediately would have asked is, wait a second, this is how it ends? Like, like Jesus 
Jesus is going to now die on the cross after all of this? See, Luke, the the narrative of Luke, this gospel has positioned Jesus as, as the coming Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the one who's been performing all these miracles. He has power over the demonic world. He's had these great teachings, large crowds gathering around him, all of this momentum And then you get to verse 32 and and you think to yourself, this is surely not how it's supposed to end. See, we see Jesus, the Son of God, hanging on the cross next to two criminals. Now, we don't know exactly the crime of these two criminals next to Jesus, but we do know that they weren't simply caught stealing from a candy store. That these men were brutal men. That they were violent. they They were dangerous uh, those who were crucified during this time period most likely were trying to start a rebellion against the Roman government. And yet, here we have Jesus, the Son of God, who is dying for the sins of the world, and he does, th- does so next to two criminals. Isn't that interesting? Like, when you stop and think about that for a moment, this might be the most important moment in all of human history. This is the moment in which God puts on display his love for the world, and he does so next to two criminals. Now, that, that honestly, that kind of matches up with the Jesus that we've been learning about all summer, that we've learned that Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus is the one who has meals with tax collectors, Jesus is the one who engages in conversation with women who are gripped with shame. It's Jesus who runs towards sinners, not away from sinners. That he came to seek and save the lost. And so on one hand, it's a surprise here, making this grand announcement of his love for the world. And yet on the other hand, this matches up with the Jesus of the Bible who pursues sinners and the worst of sinners. Now the stage is uh, further set by Luke. In verse 33, we learn that they were crucified at a place called the Skull. Now, this location received its name because of the shape of the hill or the rock that they were crucified at. It actually looked like a skull. The name is actually Golgotha in Aramaic, and in Latin, it's Calvaria, which is why we refer to this location as Calvary from time to time. It was a very public uh, location, which was the intention by the Romans They basically wanted everybody to see, hey, this is what happens if you try to rebel against the Roman government. And it is here that we have the cross of redemption, Jesus dying for the sins of the world. Now in verse 34, uh, we see Jesus saying something very important. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, this is an extremely important phrase by Jesus. Remember, Jesus is hanging on the cross here. He is dying. He is suffocating with his own blood. He's being ridiculed and mocked by other people. And yet somehow he cries out to God the Father and asks for forgiveness for the people around them for what they're doing to him. (laughs) Now, how in the world does Jesus do that? Like, how in the world does Jesus come to that place and As he's being mocked, he wants to extend forgiveness to his enemies. Like what what is taking place here where Jesus can actually refer to God as Father, where Jesus can even promise paradise in verse 43? Well, the reason why Jesus can extend forgiveness here, it's because Jesus is not just dying for sinners, but Jesus is dying in the place of sinners. 
It's an important distinction. He's not just dying on behalf of sinners, but he's dying instead of sinners. That Jesus is purchasing redemption here by taking the place and literally becoming sin for us. Now, the reason why that's important is because God could not just snap his fingers and and immediately extend forgiveness uh, for the whole world. That God is a just God and someone has to pay for the sins of the world. That someone had to step in. It's either us or it's Jesus. And so Jesus uh, meets the requirements of God's standard. He meets the requirements of what God would say, yes, I accept this sacrifice. And on behalf of Jesus' sacrifice, I extend forgiveness for all who believe. See, it's Jesus and Jesus alone who is perfect, who is blameless, who is righteous, to, for God to look at that and say, I accept that because God's standard is perfection. So it's only Jesus that, God, that God's wrath could be satisfied here at Calvary. And it is here that we learn that Jesus purchases redemption and there is no more wrath left. Now, I love how Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, kind of describes this moment of what Jesus is doing, what he's accomplishing on the cross He says, all the prophets of old said that Christ should be the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, blasphemer that ever was or ever could be on earth. That when he took the sins of the whole world upon himself, Christ was no longer an innocent person. In short, Christ was charged with the sins of all men that he should pay for them with his own blood. And so what Martin Luther is saying there is that what Jesus is doing in this sin is that he is taking the place of sinners. He's dying for us so that redemption and forgiveness could be possible. Now, Luke is describing what's taking place here. He's describing that Jesus is is dying on the cross here. But notice the different reactions to Jesus here. They're, They're all over the place, different categories of people that I want to highlight for us, because I think it's important both for us to be confronted with the question of what will you do with Jesus, but also I think it's helpful to understand when we're sharing the gospel with people what we can expect. That there are different reactions, different responses when you share Jesus with people that I think could all be summed up here in this passage. Now let me point out three for us. Number one, response number one is actually ridicule. Ridicule, verses 35 Uh, through 38. In verse 35, the rulers, it says, scoffed at Jesus. And then in 36 and 37, the soldiers mocked Jesus. Now, both of them are ridiculing Jesus for not being able to save himself. In fact, the inscription on in verse 38 that said, this is the king of the Jews, most likely was from the Romans who are also mocking Jesus and mocking the Jews. The Romans are basically saying, hey, this guy, this guy is your king. He claimed to be your king. And look, he's now dead. He's now dying. There's your king for you. It's a, it's a type of, of mockery. Now, what can we learn about this type of response in evangelism? Well, I think it's good for us to know. It's healthy for us to know that as followers of Jesus, this type of response to the gospel is not only possible, but it is growing in popularity, that when we're sharing the gospel with people, that more and more people are responding not just with this no thanks, I don't want Jesus, but they're responding with mocking in return. 
They're responding and, and ridiculing back. They're saying, wait, you actually believe in this stuff? You believe that the Bible is the word of God? You believe in something called hell and sin and, and eternal punishment? How, how, could you, how could you actually believe that? See, at least in my experience, it's, it's not just this, oh, honey, that's, that's good for you, but I believe in something else. It's, it's not really this polite exchange anymore, but sharing the gospel more and more is being met in direct opposition and even ridicule. And it's really, it's not just, it's not because people don't like Jesus. Like people like Jesus. They like his message of love. They, they like his message of being, of being for the poor. What people do not like is how the gospel is exclusive and how the gospel is offensive. That people do not like hearing the fact that they are a sinner and that they need something or someone beyond themselves to save them. People do not like hearing the fact that you cannot earn your salvation. You cannot purchase your salvation. You can't be good enough to be saved. And so as a result, people are responding, not just politely saying no thanks, but they're responding by ridiculing in return. And that's what we see here taking place here with, with the, the soldiers and the religious rulers. They're ridiculing Jesus. Now, response number two that we see in this passage is the response of rejection. Verse 39. And here we're introduced to one of the two criminals who were dying next to Jesus. And in verse 39, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, in this passage, we do see a clear contrast of responses specifically between criminal one and criminal two. That one rejects Jesus and the other accepts Jesus, even though they're really seemingly in the same position. Both are criminals, both are dying, and both are right next to Jesus. And so what can we learn from this response uh, about this criminal who rejects Jesus as it relates to us and evangelism. Well, I think it's important to know that this criminal doesn't really want Jesus. He just wants what Jesus can do for him. And if you notice in the contrast here, this criminal in verse 39 just wants Jesus to fix his problem of dying on the cross. He doesn't really want Jesus. And that's in direct contrast to the other criminal who never even asked Jesus to take him off the cross. And, and he later accepts Jesus, but this criminal just wants Jesus to change his circumstances. This person doesn't really want Jesus. Now, this is helpful for us to know because it's really a caution as we share Jesus with people to make sure that we're not painting Jesus in, in, in this light as if he's, he's this cosmic trunk monkey. Now, if you remember the trunk monkey commercials of Subaru a few years ago where you're kind of driving around and, and your car has a problem or an issue and, and the car kind of stops and you press the button and out comes this monkey from the trunk who then fixes the Subaru and, and then the, Subaru, the guy kind of drives wherever he wants to go. The monkey is there to fix your problem so you can drive wherever you want to go. And, and for many people, that's how they view Jesus. All they want for Jesus to do is to fix their problems. It's for Jesus to change their circumstances. That many people might come to Jesus because they have financial problems or they have uh, relational problems or they're struggling with depression or whatever it might be and they want Jesus just to fix their problems but they do not want to surrender their life to Jesus. 
And look, the problem with that is that it is a problem-centered approach to Jesus, that you're basically trying to get people to receive Jesus, but with conditions. Come to Jesus, and he'll fix your problems. So people come to Jesus thinking that he'll change their circumstances, thinking that he'll change their problems, and yet when he doesn't, which he doesn't promise he'll change all of our problems, and when he doesn't, that's when people have a crisis of faith. That's when people start to fall away from Jesus because they think in their minds, wait a second, we, we had a deal here, Jesus. I'll follow you if you fix all my problems. I'll follow you if you change all of my bad circumstances. And you're not holding your end of the bargain. So I'm, I'm done with this. And sadly, that's, that's many people's experiences with, with religion. And so for us, as we're sharing the gospel and we're we're trying to describe who Jesus is, we need to avoid positioning Jesus as this cosmic trunk monkey or this, this cosmic genie that exists to fix our problems. See, that's exactly what we see with this criminal here. He's basically saying to Jesus, Jesus, if you really are the Christ, change my circumstances, If you really are the Christ, then save us, save yourself, then prove it by fixing my problem. And I think the the real issue of this, and I think the caution for us in evangelism, is to make sure that we're not presenting Christianity as just a change in circumstances, but that we position Christianity as a change in position. That Christianity is not about God fixing your problems. Christianity is about God changing your status, changing your position from object of wrath, rejected outside of God's family to a new position of being accepted, beloved, approved as a son or daughter in his family. That's the basis of Christianity. See, we we want people to come to Jesus We want people to to bend their knee and to surrender their life to Jesus, not because he'll fix their problems, but we want people to come to Jesus because Jesus is God, because Jesus is the glorious, eternal, beautiful God who has always existed, who sees the end from the beginning, and we want people caught up and enamored and captivated by the glorious King of kings, and as a result, surrender every area of their life to follow Jesus. That's what we want in evangelism. And the reason for that is so that if someone follows Jesus and, and he doesn't fix their problem, they're okay. They're okay because they have Jesus and that's enough for them. Now this criminal just simply, he simply just wants what Jesus can do for him and as a result rejects Jesus. So what is the correct response? How should people respond to the cross of Christ? Well, response number three is repentance. Repentance. I know it's an old-fashioned word, it's a biblical word, and I'm going to use it. We see repentance being demonstrated by this criminal in verses 40 through 43. This is a, a fascinating interaction that we see with this criminal and with Jesus, and we learn a lot about what it means to become a Christian and what repentance is all about. And this is helpful as we call people to follow Jesus and turn from their sins. Look at, look at number one here. I'll point out three things that, that I see in this second criminal as he demonstrates repentance. Number one is we see him own his sin. 
Look at verse 41. Well, before we get to verse 41, look at verse 40. That we see this criminal demonstrate a healthy view of God. He, in his rebuke to the other criminal, he says in verse 40, do you not fear God? So right off the bat, we see this individual have a high view of God, have a healthy view of God, that God is to be feared in a healthy way, which is really important when you talk about repentance. Then he says in verse 41, he says, we indeed suffer justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. In other words, look, we are the guilty ones, not Jesus. In other words, this individual is taking responsibilities, taking ownership of his sin. Look, that's really important when you're talking about repentance. He's not minimizing his sin. He's not explaining it away. He's not saying this is just some kind of condition. He's not, he's not trying to, uh, to kind of dodge the weight of it. No, he is owning it by calling this that we are suffering justly for what we have done. Now, the second thing, the second way that he demonstrates repentance is that he acknowledges that he cannot save himself. Another really important aspect of repentance. In verse 42, really out of desperation, he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What an amazing statement. This is his statement of faith here. This is, his, this is the, really the main thrust of his, of his statement of coming to faith in Jesus. Notice what he doesn't say here. He does not say, okay, Jesus, look, I, I know I've done some bad things in my life. Obviously, I'm hanging on this cross here. But surely I've done more good than bad. And, and so come on, like, let me into your kingdom because I'm sure my, my good outweighs my bad. He doesn't say that. He says, Jesus, remember me. It's all up to Jesus saving him. It's all up to Jesus remembering him. And that is the basis of salvation. See, he understands that it's not about what he does. It's not about his good deeds. It's all about Jesus remembering him. And then thirdly, this criminal demonstrates repentance by by not wanting a change in circumstance, but wants a change in position. Again, he never asks for Jesus to let him off the cross and change his suffering circumstance. No, he just wants Jesus. Just very relationally, Jesus, remember me when you get into your kingdom. And that is what Christianity is all about, that your status, your position goes from sinner to accepted and beloved. Now, this is the first recorded uh, positive response of repentance to the cross of Jesus in the Gospels. And notice that it's by a criminal. It's by a dangerous, violent man. Like, isn't that interesting to stop and think about? Like, of all the people that could have responded first to the cross of Jesus, it it is one of the worst sinners possible. Now, what does that tell us about the gospel of grace? What that tells us is that no one is too far gone to be saved. No one has made too much of a mess of their lives for God to extend grace and hope to them. No one is too sinful to be outside of God's saving grace. Look, if we get anything out of this story, it's that God's arm is not too small to stretch out and save all kinds of people. That God can save any and all kinds of sinners. I love how J.I. Packer puts this. He says, listen to this, he says, God will not change his mind. He justified you with his eyes wide open. That he knew the worst about you at the time when he accepted you. 
Doesn't it just scream Romans 5? That when we were still sinners, what did Christ do? Christ died for us. Not, hey, clean yourself up a little bit, and then Christ will die for you. No, no, it's when we were enemies, when we were at our very worst, that's when Christ died for us to purchase us. So this is important to know. Like when we're sharing the gospel with people, we, we need this picture of repentance in order to call people to Jesus. Because look, we're not after decisions for Jesus. We're after disciples of Jesus. That we don't just want people to make a decision and maybe pray a prayer to make themselves feel better about themselves and then live however they want to live. No, we want people to be disciples of Jesus who make a decision in their life to trust in Jesus, but then they become daily repenters for the rest of their lives. Isn't that your story? I know that's my story. Like, I, I, I'm a sinner. I'm a daily repenter. I am trying to grow in, in hating my sin more and more, in loving the Bible more and more, trying to grow in dependency and humility upon God. And that is our story as followers of Jesus. And that's what we need to call people to. That when you're a follower of Jesus, you, are, you never stop repenting. Now, let me just pause for a moment and just and ask you, is that your story? Is this your response to the cross of Christ? Ha, have you repented of your sin? Have you turned away and are you following Jesus today? And we can look at this description. Does that describe you, that you, you've taken ownership of your sin have you acknowledged that you cannot save yourself? Have you come to the realization that, that you just want Jesus? You, you want your position to be changed from, from sinner to saved? Is that you this morning? Look, as we've gone through this sermon series and, and you've heard the challenge of, of trying to share Jesus with other people and, and maybe you've come to the conclusion that I don't share Jesus with people because I don't really follow Jesus. That maybe you're here and, and you've, you've heard this call of, of taking the gospel to people around you and you're thinking to yourself, man, I, I can't give to somebody that which I first haven't accepted myself. And maybe you're here today and, and you haven't repented of your sins and turned to Jesus. And maybe that's why you haven't shared the gospel with people. And so before we close today, um, I, I want to share a fourth response that I see in this passage. I left out this response intentionally because this response is probably the most troubling. And when you get to verse 35 here, it's, Luke says, and the people stood by watching. Now that should haunt you. That, that, that sentence should keep you up at night. The, the very fact that we have a group of people here who, who are watching the perfect son of God hanging on a cross who have heard of his teachings, heard of his claims, saw him do miracles. And you have the soldiers who are mocking him. You have one criminal rejecting him. And then you have this group of people who are standing at a distance, who have not made a decision whether to reject Jesus or to receive Jesus and accept him. Look, the reality is, church, that we are surrounded by thousands of people that, that describe that exact stance towards Jesus. That we are surrounded by so many people in our community who are just standing and they are watching who have not made a decision to follow or reject Jesus. That verse 35, that might describe a coworker of yours. That might describe a neighbor of yours, a family member, people who are standing at a distance, 
who have not made a decision to follow or reject Jesus, and they are waiting for you to share the hope of the gospel for them. So look, my, my pastoral occur, encouragement for you today is to not be gripped with fear at the potential that they could respond ridiculing you or rejecting you, but understand that the possibility that they could actually repent and be saved. To understand that the whole trajectory of their life, all of eternity could change in a moment if you step out in faith and, and share the hope of Jesus with the watching crowd around you. Look, we... We have the greatest news in the world. We have the news that Jesus saves sinners. Like if there's anything that we learn from this passage is that God's grace has no limits. God's grace has no bounds. Shouldn't that compel us to go? Shouldn't that compel us to share the hope of the gospel with with as many people as we see? And yet, unfortunately, the way that some of us view the gospel is is really the same way that many of us view our China set at home. Many of us view the gospel the same way that we view our, our nice china, our plates and our, and our cups at home that, that looks pretty, that we keep it clean, but we never use it. We make sure that no one touches it. We make sure it's put on display, but yet we never share it. And yet the, the call in this passage, the call in this series It's to not view the gospel as a china set, but to view the gospel as Tupperware, as something that we use, as something that we share, as something that that actually works in our lives, that we're not embarrassed about, that we're not ashamed about. And so what what is the gospel for you? Do you actually share the gospel? Do you actually take the gospel next door? The question that, that I've just been wrestling with throughout this whole sermon series is, is how does that happen? Like, how do you go from, from being someone who, who does not share Jesus with people to, to then become someone who just can't contain Jesus from the inside? How, how do you do that? I've been praying about that. I've been searching the scriptures about that. And, and look, on, on the last sermon of this sermon series, I, I wish I had something incredibly profound to share with you, but I don't. I wish I had something that would just be so new and so, it would just blow your mind. But the only thing that I've got, church, is Jesus. That's, that's all I've got to share with you. Like, that is the only thing as I'm wrestling with, like, how, how do you share the gospel with people and overcome your fear and overcome your anxiety? It's by being obsessed with Jesus. It's by understanding the fact that Jesus took my place. Jesus took my place. Like when that reality gets deep within your soul, deep within your bones, to the point where you can no longer contain it, like that is the secret. Like that is, that's the only thing that I can point to in all of the scriptures of how to become a faithful evangelist. It's about Jesus, that he died for you. And so what does that mean that Jesus took your place. What does that actually look like? Well, as I was studying Luke chapter 23, I was trying to get a feel of the context here. And, and I noticed something in this passage that as Luke is, is writing about, uh, about the, the death of Jesus, he includes here in, in the early part of Luke chapter 23, th- this, this kind of bizarre encounter with Jesus, Pilate, and Barabbas. Do you know the story here? It, it's almost like Luke is, is using Barabbas in this encounter as a microcosm of what Jesus has done for the whole world. 
See, what, what we have described here in Luke and, and even in John is, is you've got this, almost like this platform where you've got Pilate and you've got Jesus and you've got Barabbas. And it was the custom of the Jewish people to release one criminal each year, someone who was guilty, and yet they could go innocent, they could go free, and Pilate knew that. And so Pilate holds the destiny of these two individuals on this platform. You've got Jesus, the perfect, sinless Son of God, the one who healed people, the one who opened blind eyes, the one who was so loving, so innocent. And then you've got Barabbas, You've got this guilty man, this violent man, this, this man who has led rebellions against the Roman government, who, who actually deserves to be crucified. And then you've got Pilate, who shouts out to the Jewish people, and, and he says, who do you want? You want Jesus, the innocent, or do you want Barabbas, the guilty? And the crowd, you know what they say. They say, give us Barabbas. You can have Jesus, but we, we want Barabbas. Let, let Barabbas free you have the Roman soldiers who get up on this platform and they've got the key and they, they, unbu- they unbind Barabbas from the chains. They, they, they take off his shackles and they set him free. And he comes off that platform and, and he's probably embraced by his followers. And Barabbas is thinking to himself, man, look at me. The crowd, the crowd loves me. I'm, I'm the man here. And, there, and there's no account, there's no acknowledgement that Barabbas turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, thank you for taking my place. I owe you everything. He doesn't even say that. And yet God knew that. God knew that. God knew exactly that Barabbas would walk off and, and continue to commit sin. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew the will of the Father. Jesus knew that, that God had to treat Jesus like Barabbas so that Barabbas could be treated like Jesus and go free. And I, I'm reading this, this story, and, and I... For the first time, I'm reading this account and I'm thinking to myself, like, who, who really is Barabbas here? Like, Barabbas is me. Barabbas is you. Barabbas is actually us in this passage. That when you, when you read this account, it's, it's Jesus taking our place. And I'm reading this and I'm, I'm just overcome with the reality that, that God loves Barabbas that God knew Barabbas would, would continue to reject him, and yet God loves Barabbas, and God loves you. And I'm thinking to myself, but yeah, but, but Barabbas goes on, and he commits more sin. And he's like, no, no, I, I love Barabbas. Look, this is the essence of the gospel. This is what it means to become a Christian. This is what it's all about. And look, some of you are thinking to yourself that you're, you're in this deep, dark place of bondage. And you think to yourself, I, I'm going to work myself out of this pit and I'm going to save myself. And yet that's the opposite of the gospel. Look, are, are you bound this morning? Are you held in captivity by sin? Are you held under the power of, of anxiety and fear and sexual sin? Look, look what are you going to do? Are, are you going to work yourself out and free yourself on your own? Are you going to be dependent upon your own good deeds, upon your own dedication, upon upon your own work to save yourself? No, you can't do that. You're not greater than the power of sin. You cannot save yourself. Look, there's only one. There's only one person who took our place. There's only one person who took the place on that platform with Pilate and with Barabbas who said, you can have Barabbas. He can go free. I'm going to take that place. There's only one. Look, that's, that's why it's always 
going to be about Jesus. It's never gonna stop being about Jesus because Jesus' blood is sufficient to forgive the worst of sinners. Jesus' blood is sufficient for the deepest kind of shame, for the heaviest guilty sinner. Jesus' blood can save. It's always going to be about Jesus. Now, how many times have you and have I stood on that platform with Jesus and Jesus says, you can go free. I'm going to take your place. You know, how many times have we responded and we've said, no, 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 I, I deserve these chains. I deserve the, the shame and the guilt. I deserve the consequences. I, I need these chains in order to earn something back. And yet, and yet Jesus is standing there and he's saying, no, 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 G- give me, give me your sin. Give me your shame. Give me your guilt. Jesus is saying, look, give me your place so that I can take yours. See, the reality is that God had to treat Jesus like Barabbas so that he can treat you and he can treat me like Jesus. And that is the essence of what Christianity is all about. Jesus took my place. See, church, our greatest challenge in evangelism is not overcoming our fear. Our greatest challenge in evangelism is not having the most polished gospel presentation or, or trying to muster up enough boldness. Our greatest challenge in evangelism is do we actually believe that the gospel is true? Do we actually believe that Jesus took my place? To tell you, when that gets inside of your soul, that God can forgive the worst of sinners, that's when we are compelled to go that God has a ferocious love for mankind and that nothing can separate that love from us. When when we understand it, that's when we will open our mouth and share the hope that is within us. Church, it's always gonna be about Jesus. It's gonna be centered upon Jesus and the preeminence of Jesus. And at this church, we want to ignite a passion to follow Jesus because there is no other place that we can turn, that we can go. We have the greatest news in the world, but it is only good news if it gets there in time. So don't wait. Keep your head up. Look at opportunities at the watching crowd that is all around us. Let's pray together. I don't know if you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're here today and and you would consider yourself religious or spiritual. And yet there is something about this gospel message, the saving grace of Jesus that is pulling at your heart at this very moment. And you're you're wanting to respond to that now. And you're wanting to know, how do I respond to Jesus? How do I become a Christian? How am I saved? Well, I I just want to help you in this moment that that's you. Look, there's nothing special about a formulaic prayer that doesn't save you. It's your faith and and turning from your sins that saves you. But I just wanna give you some language here in this moment just to cry out to God to save you right where you are. So if you wanna repeat after me in your heart to God to, to cry out for salvation, you can say something like this. God, you are holy and I am not. God, I am full of sin and in need of you to save me. I thank you, Jesus, for taking my place on the cross. I thank you for your free gift of eternal life. And I believe 
I turn from my sin. I place my faith upon you, Jesus, and you alone to save me. Pray that to the Lord right now. And God, we do thank you and praise you for Jesus. God, help us never to get over the blood of Jesus. God, we thank you that the cross does have the final word. And I pray, God, that that we would be just so inflamed with a desire for Jesus, Lord, that just overflows out of us into other people. God, help us as a church to be a beacon of light to this community, to understand that there are many people who are just waiting to hear about the beauty of Jesus. So help us to go. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.